The following podcast contains explicit language. I'm Stephen Metcalf, and this is the Slate Culture Gap Fest Low End Theory Edition. It's Wednesday, December 7th, 2016. On today's show, The Edge of Seventeen is a bittersweet coming-of-ager from writer-director Kelly Freeman Craig. It stars Hailey Steinfeld, Blake Jenner, Kira Sedgwick, and Woody Harrelson. It's been called the realest, possibly even the best teen comedy in 25 years. The Them's fighting words will ask, uh, is it as good as everyone says? And then legendary hip-hop ensemble, A Tribe Called Quest, returns after an 18-year hiatus. That's Cicada Plus One, by my math, only to chart at number one. We discussed their new record. We got it from here with a friend of the program, Jody Rosen. And finally, our country was unusual, possibly unique in the following respect. It was founded on abstract principles. Is the Trump presidency going to be one long episode of The Apprentice and affect government not by law or abstract principle, but by stunt as carried over by celebrity power? We discuss a provocative slate essay by contributor. Julia, help me out. How do you pronounce this name? Oh, come on, Steve. (laughs) You're not going to let me be cutesy here. You can, but my name is un- Unpronounceable. <laughs> it is the most pronounceable name in like the history of the world. I guess you could call me Julie. So we'll discuss a very interesting essay by Slate editor Julia Turner. We're also joined today by Dana Stevens, Slate's film critic. Hey, Dana. Hey. Julia, um, before we get into the meat of the show, surely we have some business, yes? Two pieces of business. Number one, if you are a Slate Plus member, you can listen to our bonus segment today in which I'm taking my usual Slate Plus tyranny to the next level by forcing Steve and Dana to watch four listener-selected clips from Billy on the Street in an effort to prove to them that they were wrong about Billy on the Street. So that'll be exciting. We'll see if they recant. If you are not yet a Slate Plus member, you can join at slate.com slash culture plus. It's a great way to get extras from our show each week and to support Slate and the journalism that we do. Number two is that we are having a call-in show at the end of the year, and we're taking an unusual format this time. We are asking you to ask us for advice. Would you want advice from us? We don't know. We'll find out. Um, But you can submit questions for us, and we'll also be joined by special guest, Slate's Dear Prudence columnist and uh, doyen of the toast and thus uh, Dana and Julia Idol, at least, not to denigrate your regard for her, Steve, Mallory Ortberg. She will join our show. She has a wonderful Dear Prudence podcast uh, for Slate, um, but she will join the Culture Fest for one of our year-end shows to help us answer your questions. If you have a question, and you can define advice broadly, it can be personal, cultural, or otherwise, please call 929-266-4914. Again, that's 929-266-4914. So please send your request for counsel to me, Dana, Steve, and Mallory, and please send them along by this coming Sunday night. I believe that's Sunday, December 11th, uh, so that we can get them all sorted before we record. All right, Steve, what's next? The Edge of Seventeen is a new teen comedy dramedy from the writer-director Kelly Freeman Craig. She's, as far as I can tell, she's a newcomer. It tells the story of Nadine, played by Haley Steinfeld, a confused, abrasive, scaldingly funny, and astute pariah, whose beloved father died four years earlier. This leaves her in the care of a self-centered mother in the company of her too-perfect brother. Her one solace in life is her best friend, her one friend, who proceeds to date her brother, leaving her crushed leaving her socially and existentially stranded. Let's, uh, why don't we listen to a clip? Mr. Mayor, I didn't have a chance to do the homework last night because, 
Well, I don't, I don't know if you know this, but my dad passed away. It's just been really hard to do anything. Date of passing? Sorry? When, uh, when did he die? Um, 2011. Ooh. Uh, yeah, I have a one-year expiration date on freebies for the dead and dying. Are you serious? There'll be other opportunities. Your, your grandparents can't stick around forever. Have a seat. Okay, class. The young Mr. Lincoln. All right, we should say, Dana, that that's uh, Woody Harrelson playing her um, her uh, history teacher with whom she has this bitingly, uh, witheringly sarcastic uh, relationship. Um, Dana, this movie's beloved. Did you beloved it? Uh, yes, I did. In fact, I'm in the midst of compiling my 10 best for the year right now, my list, and I'm pretty sure Edge of 17 is, is going to be on it. I really, really like this movie, and I, it really surprised me that it was able to be as as fresh as it was, given that we hardly have a shortage of movies about teenagers. Every year brings a crop of them, and I don't know what there is about this one that feels special. I think, for one thing, is that it's a first-time project written and directed by a, a young woman, a woman in her mid-30s, Kelly Freeman Craig, who's who's closer. You know, I guess she's double the age of 17, but uh, but she's she's closer to that time frame and feels feels like she can feel her way back into the dialogue extremely well so that this character Haley Steinfeld plays is not a copy of I don't know Daria or or Molly Ringwald characters in John Hughes movies mm. or name your drop dead sarcastic teen True. heroine she's really her own drop dead sarcastic teen heroine and I'm glad that we started off with that Woody Harrelson clip because I really think the high point of the movie is the relationship between her and this you know utterly burned out kind of bone dry sense of humor teacher that he plays Julia, um, where do you fall on this? Did you did you love it too? And this movie is so up my alley that me liking it doesn't really even seem particularly interesting. <laughs> um, but I but I guess that's the point of the show. So I'll I'll divulge. So, but um, here come your value free insights, nonetheless. Yeah, exactly. No, I loved this movie. I mean, it's just a masterclass in how conveying the specificity of experience when done well is so beautiful and moving and feels so much more profound than when you're dealing in types. My favorite thing about the movie actually is how it portrays a family after loss. I mean, the specifics of the character and her romantic life and her friendships are all, and her relationship with the teacher played by Woody Harrelson are all fascinating. But to me, the vacuum created by the death of her father and the mother's you know, valiant but flawed uh, effort to lead the family and just how unmoored the family feels, how unanchored, how afloat, how spinning around they feel um, felt incredibly powerful and and rare. I mean, that I'm trying to think when you see movies about death and loss, do, do you usually check in four years later when things are sort of normal, but also deeply horrible? Mm. It's an interesting mm -hmm. moment to capture. And I thought that seemed really unusual and great. I will say my one question about the movie that I'd love to hear you guys weigh in on is to what degree is it carried by the extraordinary performances of both uh, Haley Steinfeld as Nadine, God, incandescent is a terrible word to use about a young actress, but like, <laughs> wow, she really makes this person feel compelling and real. Um, and then also uh, Hayden Zito in the role of Irwin, who's a very nerdy boy with a crush on her who is totally magnetic and compelling and fun to spend time with on screen. Uh, there were a couple lines um, and a couple characterizations of the mom that felt 
like they might be a little thinner than the movie made them seem just because of how great the performances were. So I guess that's my question. Does the excellence of the movie lie in the writing or the performing? Oh, I think it's got to be a little bit of both. Julia, that's a, uh, that is a brilliant observation. I mean, the fact that the father dies presumably when she's 12 or 13 and um, and the movie takes place when she hits puberty years later, which is when an aspect of the grief will hit her all over again because she's starting to engage you know, with the opposite sex. Uh, it's pulled off beautifully. The mother manages to be both scattered and self-centered and um, overprotective and underperforming as a mother all at once. Um, and it's against that background that she has to become socially self-possessed, sexually awakened, all the things that I guess one becomes between the ages of you know 14 and 18. And um, I think it's a lovely movie. I don't think I loved it quite as much as you two did, only because I found some of the writing and some of the acting slightly mannered. I felt as though the sitcom were in the background of this. You know, I felt as though I was watching performers who'd watched a lot of sitcoms and and um, it seemed pulled a little bit through that keyhole, even though I felt the emotions and the writing and the performances were by and large really, really true and smart and sharp. But I'll tell you the thing I like most about it. I like that if you're going to make Woody Harrelson the wise history teacher, um, don't don't have him say anything wise. That's a that's a that's a unexpected choice and a hard choice to pull off. Also, just making Woody Harrelson a bitter asshole, which is what he seems like for much of the movie, is also a fun twist. But it's an amazing amount of both cold flint and hearthy warmness coming from him at the same time. Um, that for a stretch of the movie is the one thing that anchors her. Dana, did you feel as though the story about losing her best friend maybe got a little lost along the way? That was that was one structural complaint I had. I don't know. I guess that's, that seems sort of like the precipitating factor for a whole bunch of other crises, right? Mm-hmm. The first bad thing that happens to her is that her longtime best friend starts dating her brother, and that sort of sets off this series of crises. So that didn't seem like the central story to get lost exactly. But I just wanted to go back to something you said a bit ago about about feeling that this had some sitcom features to it. Um, James L. Brooks, who is, of course, the god of sitcoms, who you know was, is behind the Mary Tyler Moore show and The Simpsons and also movies like Broadcast News. And, you know, I mean, the, the guy who sort of invented the, the screwball back and forth dialogue on TV style um, is the producer of this movie and the mentor of, of Kelly Freeman Craig and, in fact, talked her through a second rewrite and really helped her get this project going, not just as a writer, but getting to, attached to it as a director. So, you know, I think that there is some some DNA of, of the sitcom and, and also of the, the rom-com a la broadcast news mixed up in this movie. That's exactly what it is. It's the James L. Brooks DNA. That's but to me, that's all to the good. I mean, I loved, yeah. I guess part of what I loved about this movie was just the effervescence of it. And, and this sort of, in spite of the fact that grief is is a central motif in the movie, the kind of non-dramatic nature of it. It made me think, strangely enough, of a very, very different coming of age movie, Boyhood, Richard Linklater's sort of, you know, real life tracing of a boy's life from a few years ago. In that this movie shows adolescence as this time of emptiness, right? This like long period of time in which anything could happen. But in both of those movies, Boyhood and Edge of Seventeen, nothing really dramatic does happen during the movie, right? I mean, and this isn't a spoiler, but nobody gets pregnant, right? Nobody dies. Nobody almost dies. There's there's a sense of everydayness to the problems that are being worked out that just was really welcome to me in this in this kind of movie. Yeah, and then within that everydayness, though, the movie does some stuff that's nicely modern. I mean, the idea that one of her love interests is 
an Asian man, like that's way too rare. It's so rare for an Asian man to be the romantic lead. It's just way too rare. And oh my God, Hayden Zito like should be in everything. He's so charming in this role. I anticipate, and this is a slightly spoilery complaint that some people who closely watch the degree to which Asian men get to be romantic leads might quibble with where the movie uh, leaves these two characters. Um, and I think that's a fair quibble, but also the the final scene between them felt emotionally real to me. So uh, I think that's worth pondering. The other thing I will observe about this movie is that it traffics in a practice that has become so common in our modern entertainments that I have not yet seen called out anywhere, but has become a complete crutch for storytelling, which is, you know, it has long been observed that the movies of the 80s and 90s are full of plot that depend on answering machine messages left and overheard. Oh, you're in your friend's house and you hear the answering machine message and oh my God, blah. You know, you heard something you weren't supposed to hear. You're embarrassed and ashamed, whatever. Um, and then we all switched to voicemail. And so there was never like a plot function where you could eavesdrop on someone else's voicemail and it became very complicated. However, technology has moved on and it has delivered screenwriters a gift, which is that now... We text each other instead of leaving voicemails because who wants to leave a voicemail? And the device of the text that's almost sent and then deleted happens like five times in this movie. And it's also happened in like every other remotely pop culture savvy entertainment I've seen for the last year, I feel like. But, you know, the, the ability to instead of just having someone wistfully stare out a window and have pass across their face ambiguously the thing they think they want to say <laughs> decide not to say you actually get to see them type it out it's so literal and it happens all the time screw interiority just put it up there on the screen in writing type 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 delete 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 type 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 like that is now the sound <laughs> of like um has hesit- emotional hesitance in modern life i love this that backspace is the is the symbol of emotional hesitancy in modern life that Slate pitch right there. That's a good one. I actually didn't notice the uh, the texting motif in this movie, but now that you've mentioned it, I'm sure I'll start seeing it everywhere. Here, here, um, on all the above points, including the um, Asian love interest is handled beautifully, both with and against stereotype in a self-conscious and interesting way. A w- great performance from that actor. But one last thing is that I want to mention, mention the budget of the movie, $9 million. Um, the friends of mine in and around the film business all insist this is a very, very hard number to make a movie at. Um, but of course, it's the budget at which you can make a thoughtful, interesting um, movie aimed at the domestic audience. Um, that Movies tend to be less expensive or vastly more expensive than that. I was very, very grateful for that aspect of it, just to be slightly arcane about it. But but a kind of low to mid-budget movie with some star power whose real emphasis is on the writing and the performances uh, was, was very welcome. Anyway, okay, the movie is Edge of 17. Uh, we liked it. Three thumbs up. Go see it and tell us what you thought about it at facebook.com slash culturefest. All right, moving on. A Tribe Called Quest is one of the true giants of hip-hop. The group was formed, yes, it is true, 30 years ago, 30-plus years ago in St. Albans, Queens in New York, and they came of age along with De La Soul and the Jungle Brothers as sometimes called alternative hip-hop. Anyway, their smart, sonically layered, playful, and deadly serious music produced two stone masterpieces, The Low End Theory and Midnight Marauders. They now have a new record. It's their first in 18 years. We Got It From Here is, uh, in my estimation, it's great from the opening cut once again the super rich loamy soundscapes and cutting lyrics from q-tip and fife dog here to discuss 
contributing writer to the New York Times Magazine and dear friend of the program, DFOP Jody Rosen. Welcome back. Thanks, Steve. So great to be here. Uh, it's great to have you. Do you agree with my estimation that these guys are one of a handful of the really, truly great of the greatest of the uh, hip hop groups? Oh, yeah, um, no doubt about it. And also sort of somehow the most lovable um, of them all. There's something about their their sound, um, the kind of um, booming bass and, you know, hard hitting snare drums with, uh, you know, sort of jazzy samples on top, which is a very, a very warm um, sound. And yet it's it's music you can move to. And then the, the, the kind of alchemical mix of voices and and personalities um Q-Tip, the leader, the kind of um, musical mastermind of the group who has this wonderful kind of rich nasal (laughs) voice um, and is sort of a, you know, a a philosopher, um, an abstract philosopher, as he calls himself. And then there's Fife Dog, the the kind of scrappy, guttural street rapper. That that combination is really just really makes them some kind of platonic ideal of what hip hop should sound like. Hmm. Why don't you pick a... um... Pick a track for us to uh, open up with here. Yeah, well, I mean, we're talking about this great new album, and I think we should listen to um, the lead single, which is kind of the statement of purpose of the album, or at least and it's the one that, that certainly caught the zeitgeist. This album um, was released on November 11th, three days after the catastrophic election. And, um, you know, I think that, that Tribe, like everyone else, sort of thought Hillary Clinton were going to win the election, but their songs definitely touch on on Donald Trump and on um, on the, the strife in the country over the past couple of years. And, and this song um, is called We the People. You know, it, it, it begins with those words from the preamble to the U.S. Constitution. We don't believe you, because we the people are still here in the rear. Yo, we don't need you. You ain't a killing off good young nigga mood. When we get hungry, we eat the same fucking food. The ramen noodle. This simple voodoo is so maniacal, reliable, and full of juju. The irony is that this bad bitch in my lap, she don't know me, she make money, she don't study that. She gon' give it to me, ain't gon' tell me nothing back. She gon' take the brain away the place she spit on that. The doors and signs with it, don't try to rhyme with it. VH1 has a show that you can waste your time with. Guilty pleasure, take the edge off reality and pull a salary. Uh, important context here, of course, is that Fife Dog um, died this past year in March at age 45. Um, so there's there's an elegiac quality to this album, but it does not sound at all mournful. It's it's celebratory, and it's um you know one of the things that makes the album so much fun to listen to is you know everybody's been kind of um, all hip hop fans have been collectively mourning the loss of Fife Dog, but here he was, all these great new Fife Dog verses and his voice, you know, leaps from the speakers. So it's he's 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 gone and yet he's back. Is there any acknowledgement anywhere in the lyrics of his passing? Is there a song written after he died on the album? Uh, yeah, I mean, it's it's sort of there throughout. I think part of the reason is that, that Q-Tip finished up the... Um, the production on this album in the months since. I think it was like a big project in order to honor Fife. But there's one track that in particular that addresses it um, with a little wink at Donald Trump. The closing the closing track on the album is called The Donald. That's Donald Trump's nickname, but it's it's kind of jacking that nickname, cl- reclaiming that nickname for Fife Dog because one of Fife Dog's many monikers was Don Juice. And so the final track has a Fife Dog verse on it and then has a bunch of lyrics that that address his passing. Five dog. That's why I had to come true. Five dog. You spit wicked every verse. Five dog. 
respect the training man first. Five dog. I know you have the man shook up. Five dog. Jody, it seems to me when somebody reunites after, you know, I mean, close to 20 years uh, of silence, um, I mean, they toured in 06, but this is their first record. The, the biggest question really is going to be relevance. And to what extent are you pleasing old fans at the expense of doing something um, really urgent in the present tense? It doesn't seem to me that they had any problem uh, squaring that circle at all. Yeah, that's kind of the remarkable thing about this record. It doesn't sound like a nostalgia trip record. Nor does it sound like, you know, a kind of gray-haired group trying to keep up with the present in a mawkish way by, you know, jumping on whatever the hot beats are. Um, I think that actually is a, a tribute really to Q-Tip, who's the, who is the musical visionary of this group. And it really, you know, he's he spent years DJing him on other things. He's like a famous crate digger, you know, musical connoisseur um and the sound he came up with for this record bears all the hallmarks of of the tribe's classic sound but it kind of thickens it with a lot of feedbacky guitar uh sort of you hear sounds that are a bit like funkadelic uh in the mix um there are some very interesting contributors on here you know all-star contributors um rappers kanye west andre 3000 kendrick lamar elton john is on here he got guitar work from jack white on the record but it very much sounds like a a tribe called quest record and a super assured one which was you know he's like we're doing our thing um Come join the party if you want to. And, and uh, yeah, I think it speaks to just um, the fact that they, they have such a distinctive blueprint, sonically, musically. Um, you know, they're, they're no, they're, there are many people who've tried to sound like them and, and failed, um, and they are inimitably themselves. And so, you know, why not, why not go with that? I don't think they know how to do anything else. And that's, that's good for us. Jody, you mentioned that there's all these guest appearances on the album. Are you talking about people who who collaborated on the actual making of the album, or are you including samples in that too? Because I wanted to to hear you on on the sample game of Tribe Called Quest, which if there's any group it reminds me of from that time in particular, it's it's De La Soul, the way that they you know bring in all kinds of extremely incongruous samples. For example, Elton John, or at one point Gene Wilder from Willy Wonka and the Chocolate mm. Factory finds finds his way in there. What ha, t- talk about how they use um other people's work and layered into that crazy quilt. Well, yeah. And on the current record, um, yeah, Elton John's on here. But but actually, Q-Tip was, um, it was very important to Q-Tip to get everybody in the studio together. You know, Tribe Called Quest had a lot of internal tensions, in particular between the two rappers, the two leaders, Q-Tip and Fife. So this was a a reunion. um, And it was a a kind of like a, you know, a group healing. And he wanted everybody in the studio together. So they all, um, they made this record almost entirely at Q-Tip's home studio in New Jersey. And I, as I, I believe that all the musicians who appear on on the album um, were there in person, including Elton John. I think he came by to do a session. I know Jack White did. Um, so Elton John's on here. There's snippets of Rocket Man, but I think he's also there's also his live piano playing that that Q Tip recorded and kind of cut up. Um, yeah, it's a very it's a very um, uh, rich kind of sonic stew. What I thought is, is is what I think is interesting and distinctive about the album is it doesn't sound like anything you've really heard before. You know what I mean? There's like, there's a lot of, there's there's some police sirens on this record that kind of nod back to Public Enemies sound um, in the in the late 1980s and early 90s. You can hear classic Tribe Called Quest in here, but but again, you know, a lot of a lot of the the the, the textures are 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 new, and so it, it it definitely sounds fresh. It's interesting. Dana mentioned De La Soul. They, of course, also had a reunion album earlier this year, and I'm curious to hear you kind of compare the approach of like 
I mean, it's a, you know, it's an age old question for musical groups of all stripes and musicians of all stripes. But what do you do when you come back? How do, how are you yourself and how are you new? Um, and how is this not just like a pocket lining nostalgia trip? You know, Tribe Called Quest haven't made an album for 18 years. Fife made one um, kind of middling solo album. Q-Tip has released a couple of interesting but not transcendent solo albums. But there's been, they've really been silent. Um, De La Soul have made albums sporadically through the years. So there is definitely a longer absence here. And... Um, and uh, and I think maybe the tensions that sort of split the group apart um, um, are what gives this album its kind of edge or it's really its sense of like, you know, wonder <laughs> about it because it's it's a, a, a lot of fans never thought they'd hear a Tribe Called Quest album again. Their their final album, The Love Movement, was probably their the the final one before this one the last one in 1998 before their breakup was a lesser work and it sort of seemed like they'd petered out and that was the last we we're going to hear from them um even though they um you know appeared on stage now and again and sort of doing reunion tour type stuff playing their playing their old hits um so uh i think they, there's a freshness to to what they're doing because they haven't done it in so long, and they're so and they're and they're there there's there's like a clear vitality, like a, they really wanted to come correct and come back, come with their their a game again. So the response to this album is kind of like when you have the dream where you discover like a secret extra room in your house. It's like impossible riches, like you knew where all the walls and doors were, and there wasn't going to be any more. And then suddenly you're like, wait, there's this whole thing over here. Like that that's part of the the rapturous response for sure. And 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 I think. Um, no small part of that feeling is the fact that Fife has <laughs> that Fife died, and so you've right. you you know there was this there was this sense that it's all over, and then all of a sudden you know this this album was announced only about a month before it came out, so um, we heard from the members of Tribe Called Quest after Fife's death in March, but there was no word leaked out at all that they had been recording an album at the time of his death, so it really came as a wonderful surprise, and it's sort of, you know, there's this real sense of hearing Fife Dog from beyond the grave, and and he he's such a vivacious, fun rapper, you know, he really is a, a punchline rapper. To hear him fully in that mode, um, you know, even though he's left us, um, sounding, you know, as good as he ever did is is really great. The other thing I want to say is, though, is that I think that the the, the kind of cultural political moment into which this album was airdropped gives it its special feeling in a way that, you know, for instance, De La Soul's records, since you asked about them, they, they didn't, they didn't have that. There's a bunch of songs on here that are frankly political that discuss um, the racial strife in the country that talk about Donald Trump and, and, um, and reactionary politics and talk about things like gentrification and, um, Police killings, um, and 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 you know that uh, we heard that song "We the People" at the beginning, and I think you know one of the things that I've been thinking a lot about since Trump's election is democracy and and the the you know the beautiful um, the beautiful idea of American democracy. And one of the things that that I think is so great about um, American music is that the 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 democratic promise of this country, you know, we may always fall short of it in our um, in our political life in our civic life, but that promise can be fully realized in in art and in our popular music is one of the places I think where you you really hear it the be- hear it hear it most most fully fleshed out and especially in a group like this which brings together you know a kind of glorious 
concord of voices and um, sounds. And, 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 and this album, I feel like it's sort of like, you know, um, a song like We the People or, the, or, or the, um, the lead track on the album, The Space Program, is performing a kind of, the kind of checks and balances on power that, you know, dissident art performs even when our institutions are broken and dying. So in that sense, like there, this, this uh, record, I think for a lot of people was very, and is very comforting at, at this moment, particularly if you happen to be someone who's a concerned citizen who also loves some hip hop, um, this record isn't, it ain't just a record that you, you know, dance to. It's a record you, you think about and, you know, find solace in. A uh, record that you think to Jody, that was beautiful. Um, so why don't we end there and let's go out on, why don't we go out on um, space program Jody, thanks so much for coming back on the uh, on the program. Let's have you back soon. Thanks, Because we never bore responding to the ready crowds roar and promoters try to hit us with the art of war. We about our business. We not quitters, not bullshitters. We deliver. We go get us. Don't be bitter because we not just niggas. Jerobe, my fire wolf into different cloth. Our country was founded on abstract principle, and it's always prided itself uh, on venerating the rule of law. Whether it's always um, hewed to these principles is, of course, another question and for another day. But right now, we have seen some ominous signs that these supposed cornerstones of American democracy may not fully survive or at least thrive in the womp and pomp of a Trump presidency. Um, which is very much about the man and the cult of the man surrounding the man. As Julia Turner writes in her um, essay on Slate, Trump is up to something different. The job saved at Carrier, that's the um, air conditioning manufacturer that Trump jawboned into keeping somewhere between 800 and 1,000 or so jobs in the United States. Those jobs aren't examples of a proposed plan that promises similar widespread results for the American workforce. The jobs saved at Carrier are the plan. What Trump has laid out here is a troubling blueprint for government by stunt. Um, Julia, that's, uh, I thought your essay was very pointed and very timely. I mean, that's exactly right. I mean, the point of a policy is that it applies to absolutely everyone. And that's, that is just a fundamental feature of um, government by rule of law. That's not, that's not worth sacrificing for 800 jobs, I take it. No. And, you know, of course, the the obvious counterpoint is like Trump isn't president yet. He can't enact policy. Isn't it great that he's like strong arming companies on the phone before he even gets into the office? What a go getter. Right. Um, But honestly, not that many people were making that counterpoint when I set out to write this essay. I did it because for all the fanfare around the stunt and, and for all that it will do good for the people in Indiana who will keep their jobs. It is a stunt. There is wide criticism of this move from everyone from Bernie Sanders to Larry Summers to the Wall Street Journal editorial board to the Obama White House to Sarah Palin, who accused Donald Trump somewhat astoundingly of crony capitalism and and putting forth an illogical policy that in not applying to companies broadly would weaken American institutions, which, you know, I mean, I, I honestly think it's undervalued the degree to which some of the surprise around Trump being elected comes from the fact that uh, the sort of people who feared Trump being elected also feared Sarah Palin being anywhere near the White House and felt like incompetence and lunacy were roundly rejected by the American public and surely would be so again. So the idea that now Sarah Palin has joined the like board of sober critics of Trumpism is <laughs> itself like a horrifying sign of the times. Well, although I suspect um, if she'd been given a job, she'd be singing a different tune. But the thing that really itched at me about this stunt was that it seemed to really replace the idea of policy, of of moving systemic levers of 
uh, power to create overall change in American lives with the notion of of like a gimmick. And I thought it would be worth looking at this move through the lens of Trump's 12 years of making reality television to entertain us all, because what it began to remind me of is the version of business in air quotes that you saw on The Apprentice. Um, And it made me concerned that what he's setting up to do is enact a version of government in air quotes that has about as much relationship to the real work of governing as The Apprentice does to the real work of uh, running a company. Right. And, and and also just to emphasize another aspect of it, I mean, Barack Obama is the most uh, popular politician in America right now. He exits the office with approval ratings significantly higher than Reagan's at a similar point in their um, second term, um, in part because he's created an enormous number of jobs. I mean, a, a number that dwarfs by orders upon orders of magnitude what Trump can do simply by jawboning. What I think might be slightly... Um, sinister about this is that this is actually narrow casting in a way, right? It's going after precisely those people left behind by this recovery um, in a kind of gimmicky and imagistic way, as opposed to treating the American economy like um, a whole thing that the president is the steward of. Um, Talk a little bit about uh, the relationship between The Apprentice and this act of uh, of image making via um stunt the, the you know i mean that was the point that that obama's white house made is like you know compared to the million jobs saved by the auto bailout or the 805,000 manufacturing jobs created during obama's tenure not just saved but created like a thousand jobs quote unquote saved when the other half of them are still going to monterey mexico is peanuts. I mean, that wasn't the word they used, but that was the sentiment. Think about the branding. Think about the impact. The auto bailout coming after the bank bailout is framed as a salvaging of companies, right? Like when you hear it, you think more corporations are getting handouts from the government. I mean, that's not, you know, if you looked at the public opinion polling around the auto bailout for the last eight years, I'm sure it would show ups and downs that would be illuminating. But just the sheer visceral might of the image of of all of these concrete things, air conditioners, workers, a phone call to a CEO, Mexico, they're not going. Like it's not abstract at all. It is entirely concrete and tangible. And I hear you about narrow casting and I hear you about his effort to preserve atom by atom this corner of the broader economy, which if you talk to most macroeconomists, they would suggest that in fact hanging on to this particular type of job is unsustainable and that the economy would do better to focus on education and moving worker skill sets and wage levels to other areas of the economy more likely to grow. Um, But the tangibility of that example is not going to have power just with, you know, people who've lost manufacturing jobs or fear losing them and hope to keep them. Like, it's just memorable. It's more Mm -hmm. stick in your heady than, than some of this abstract stuff. And I think one of the questions with Trump is, you know, is he... I mean, this is the question that's come out about the tweets, right, that we talked about a little bit in our segment on Hamilton. Like, is there an evil mastermind manipulating us or is he just a dimwit or is it some combination of the two? I think with the sort of visceral tangibility versus abstraction question, there's a similar pull, which is he certainly knows how to create a tangible, tight story that lands with a punch. It is less clear to me whether he is even capable of zooming out and and thinking more broadly than that. I mean, whether he Mm -hmm. pulled off this carrier deal just to make an impact on people or he did it because, you know, as I think someone pointed out in the gist, he's a real estate guy. Real estate operates deal by deal. It's not really a systems business or a logistics business or this kind of business where you think about how small inputs have unintended consequences across 
huge expanses of institutions, right? It's like, get this one closed, get this one closed, oh, that one went bad, do another one, right? Like it's, it is deal by deal. Um, mm-hmm. And this suggests a, a very literal deal-oriented approach towards governing that I think both will be bad in terms of what it achieves, but also may be very effective in communicating a vision of leadership to big swaths of American voters in a way that freaks me out about voting in 2020. Hmm. Well, and it also, another way that it, it harks back to our discussion about Mike Pence's misadventures at Hamilton and, and Trump's reaction to it is that this is a very clear demonstration of how he is going to wage misinformation campaigns, right? Like he will govern by simply asserting that he has done things that has that he's that that accomplished something for the country and whether or not that can be scaled up. Right. Whether or not these thousand jobs saved at Carrier can be scaled up to helping anyone else or or making any other deal is not important because he will simply assert that it is so because it happened. Mm-hmm. I'm I'm wondering whether his powers I mean, I know we're in the um, you know, dreadful flush of his uh, election. So he seems as though he has superpowers. He pulled off this improbable victory. Nonetheless, I wonder if he's as super powerful as we take him to be um, and whether or not the American public is, na- is as naive as, as maybe they would need to be in order to have anecdotal uh, economic evidence overwhelm what the macro economy is doing. I mean, unemployment's sub 5% right now. Inflation is you know, non-existent. Um, and the economy's growing at uh, 3% plus. Uh, literally, he's been handed uh, four aces, um, but he can only lose them. He can't add more aces. He has all of them in that respect. So I, sus- you know, I I agree that there's a uh, in the in the immediate aftermath of it, there's a publicity value. I think it's cumulative effect uh, going forward. I I disagree. I think it's going to be quite low. Yeah, I mean, I hope so. I I I mean, I don't hope that the American economy tanks, but I hope that um I, I hope that we as a reading populace and and set of civilians can collectively figure out how to read Trump's actions as president. But this is where I did think it was useful to look back at The Apprentice. I mean, obviously, there were a bunch of think pieces. We did a segment looking at The Apprentice and The Celebrity Apprentice as templates for Trump as a campaigner, right, for Trump as someone who knew how to you know, cut through to the drama and heat of a moment and say something that seemed to break the rules in an arresting way. But it was interesting to watch a couple episodes of the show again and look for evidence of how working on that show for more than a decade might shape his approach toward governing. And just the the knack that show had for presenting these tangible challenges and for creating these tangible, quote unquote, victories week by week for certain teams struck me as as troubling. It makes its Faco phoniness seem realer than that of other reality shows. Often the teams are judged by how much money they've earned in a challenge, whether it's running a lemonade stand or running a pedicab business or something else. And, you know, one team has more quote unquote money at the end of the day. Of course, we don't, you know, we're not auditing the receipts. So who knows? <laughs> who knows how that came to pass? But rather than just the kind of subjective judgments of like Padma Lakshmi being like, mm, like your, your um, Booyah Bays is really extraordinary. Like, you know, it, it. you can see like which team made more money. Okay. They made less, they lose. Like it seems, it seems more ruthless and true than a lot of the other things we judge on reality shows, even though it's equally phony, right? It's canny. The show is really canny in presenting its fakery as legit and um, presenting what you need to show achievement as like notching a small win week by week with no consequence for larger systems, right? All the tasks are pop up, right? So, run a pop-up bridal boutique 
And it's like, you're not trying to create an ongoing relationship with a vendor. It doesn't matter if you like shred all the dresses, like you're just trying to get them out the door quick. So you have more money or less than at the boardroom at the end of the episode. And, you know, perhaps critics would say I'm being too literal here, but uh, I don't know. The rhetoric of the show is is canny and clever, mm-hmm. and I think we're going to start right. seeing it from the White House. Right. And I want to be clear. I'm not rooting for the American economy to tank, nor am I in any way um, gainsaying that tr- Trump and company are master manipulators of public opinion. That clearly, they have to be. Um, I, I only mean that at the end of the day, rightly or wrongly, the president's performance is judged almost along a single axis, which is the performance of the whole economy. And it's at the end of the day, people kind of know if their Medicaid's been cut via privatization or their um, job <laughs> or their job list. But I don't know. They know, these, I mean, they, they know these things very intimately. But couldn't you argue that democratic failure of anecdote is part of what's responsible for Trump's sure. election? Like, yes. I, you know, I mean, Obamacare, right. you can count as an achievement, but it's got terrible failures at the state level and it's actual baseline costs and impacts. And a lot of people who voted for Trump were, were bad this year as as fees went up. And, you know, yeah. that, well, that, no, but that, you're only, that you're making not... But yes, but you're making my argument for me. That was... And that can't, my argument is that, that that can't be covered over with an anecdote. I mean, Barack Obama can point to people at the State of the Union whose lives have been legitimately saved by his policies. But, um, you know, the, the, the problem is there are just too many people having experiences that can't be overridden by public relations. I agree with what you're saying about their strategy, and I agree with its sinister, slightly seductive and sinister powers. I just think that he's now about to take over the ship of state and and it springs leaks everywhere all the time. I don't know. I mean, I, I hope you're right. But the thing that concerns me in some ways stems out of the election result, which is, okay, you can look at the indicators and say the American economy is in better shape than it's been in for a really long time. And you can point to Obama's approval ratings right now but I'm not sure that the same comparison would hold if you asked for the generalized approval ratings of the state of the economy, um, because I think it, through use of anecdote and through the way that he spoke about the economy on the trail, uh, Trump both exploited and helped create the sense that the economy is in the crapper. I think there's also, because these things take a while to um, take hold, there's some considerable uh, likelihood that the economy will continue to improve for several years and Trump will just take credit for it and get reelected. The very mixed news is that we get to sit and see how this actually plays out um, over the next few years. And um, we'll revisit the subject, I'm, I'm sure. Uh, the piece is The Stunt Presidency by Julia Turner. Moving on. Now is the moment in our show where we endorse. Dana Stevens, what do you have? All right. Well, my endorsement this week is a little bit conceptual. <laughs> it's a, it's sort of an endorsement of of doing less rather than doing more. And what inspired it actually has to do with our last topic, with the uh, the scary world that looms ahead with the person that we've just elected to lead our country, and uh, and the anecdote specifically that circulated this weekend about a young Muslim woman on the New York subway system who was screamed at and harassed by some drunk men who were Trump supporters, and they tried to rip off her hijab and. No one did anything about it in the train car. She ended up being fine and I think went to the police after they had gotten off the train. But it just kept me thinking all weekend about how this was happening in my city on a train that I ride all the time on that line. And uh, 
And my first thought was just, you know, the rage fantasy, the pleasurable rage fantasy of having been on that train car and being able to stand up for her and being able to scream at some drunk, drunk Trump supporters, which would be an enormous cathartic pleasure right now. Although I think the way you're actually supposed to handle those kind of situations is, of course, to, to defuse and calm everyone down and sort of take the victim aside quietly. Anyway, all of that led to the realization that if I had been on that car, it's very likely that I would have had earphones in my ears and been reading a book or an article or something and might have not seen what was going on just simply because I was sort of not plugged into the world around me. So this all leads to the fact that my endorsement that I'm doing myself in a way to try to be a little bit more of an alert citizen is to take out your earphones and pay attention. I like to have my earphones in because I love to listen to podcasts. And presumably everyone who listens to our show loves to listen to podcasts. And I'm not saying that I'm never again going to walk down the New York City streets or sit in the subway listening to a podcast. But I think I'm going to try to be a little bit more aware of the sights and sounds around me so that, you know, when crazy shit like this starts to go down, I can be one of the citizens who's getting up and yelling in the bad guy's face or whatever you're supposed to do. So um, walking around without your earphones once in a while and tuning into your civic society, that's my endorsement. Oh, that's great. Um, Julia, what do you got? Uh, I love Dana's like podcast killing endorsement. I'm trying to think what else I can endorse that's so against interest. Um. I'm going to endorse obvious escapism rather than civic engagement. (laughs) Um, So get psyched. I finally discovered high maintenance. You guys have discussed high maintenance twice, I think, both the original web series and the new adaptation that came out on HBO earlier this year. But I had never watched a minute of it and started it, I think, a bit before the election and continued it afterwards. Um, And what a perfect show. It there are so many different kinds of pleasures that um, culture can provide you with, like the work of a fascinating mature artist taking on a new subject or new style or uh, the familiarity of something you love from the past or, you know, this or that thing, a, a, com- a complex and beautiful thing made by many people working together. One of my favorites is when somebody emerges onto the scene and they just have such a specific voice and their execution is already top notch. Like when you... You just feel like you get knocked over by a gust of wind, like a train coming into the station or something. Like it just feels like very specific and very full throttle at the same time, like specific without being at all tentative. It makes me so happy. And so if you are one of the, I mean, all of you out there listening probably like I've already watched all these episodes 20 times, Julia, whatever. But if you have not, if you have resisted the high maintenance bandwagon for some reason, um, maybe it's my like latent anti-weedism, like I'm much more of a booze girl than a weed girl or something. It's like... What it is is this set of beautiful short stories about New Yorkers as the weed guy goes to various apartments. And the storytelling is subtle and human and funny and sharp and great. And if you have not yet watched it, you should. Hear, hear. Yes. I think people do sometimes resist it because they think it's a weed comedy and it's going to be like Harold and Kumar stoner jokes. And it has nothing to do with that. I think I was expecting more like Beavis and Butthead or I don't know. It's just a device that gets him into the lives of people all over New York of all different sorts. Um, and I just didn't I didn't get that at all. I guess I should also briefly note here that my husband works for HBO. And uh, so I suppose I'm slightly conflicted in making this endorsement. But I also feel like my true journalistic duty is to tell our listeners what I really fucking love. And mm-hmm. I just fell hard for this show. 
All right, well, my endorsement today, a couple things. One is that, first of all, I want to endorse the defeat of Pat McCrory in North Carolina for the gov- in the governor's race, um, specifically for the reason that apparently if you look at the numbers, if you crunch them dispassionately, it turns out he was defeated by identity politics. Um, the very thing that a lot of critics who I'm sure totally by coincidence happen to be heterosexual white males, the very thing that's coming in for a thrashing um, after the defeat of Hillary Clinton, um, the anti-identity politics screeds uh, don't hold up to uh, reason or the data, in part because, of course, Hillary is going to end up winning by close to three, uh, the popular vote by close to three million votes. Um, But also, secondly, McCrory is the absolute perfect counterexample. Um, McCrory was in a red state in the South um, that went for Donald Trump, and he still lost. Why did he lose? It turns out that people of North Carolina hate and tell survey takers that they hate the bathroom bill. uh, that was discriminatory against uh, gays and, and trans people. Um, and they hate many other things about the McCrory administration that involve uh, what they would characterize as politically incorrect behavior. Um, it, the idea that identity politics is at all responsible for our current fate with Trump is totally disproven by McCrory's defeat. Very good essays are now being written about this and their pushback, uh, especially on that completely silly piece by Mark Lilla um, in the New York Times, that somehow identity politics and political correctness is responsible for the presidency of Donald Trump. It's total bosh. Um, but the other thing I'd like to um, uh, endorse is the essay by uh, Stephen March, at March with an E on the end of it um, in the LA Review of Books. It's a long essay called The Obama Years. Uh, it's it's very it's very thoughtful, lyrical, um, and very perceptive about what it is to have those years suddenly with the election of Donald Trump turn into the past in some completely new and unexpected way. Um, even though we don't know exactly what's next and therefore how we'll look back on the Obama years, it's this attempt to do this um, kind of future-perfect retrospective look back from some hypothetical future to what these years were to all of us and what Obama's kind of debonair presence in all of our lives meant overarching these years. Um, And it's both personal and abstract and theoretical and beautifully written. And I I recommend it to you highly. All right. um, Thank you, Dana. Thanks, Steve. Uh, Thanks, Julia. Thank you. You'll find links to some of the things we talked about today at our show page, slate.com slash culturefest. And you can email us at culturefest at slate.com or drop us a note at our Facebook page, facebook.com slash culturefest. Our producer is Benjamin Frisch. Our intern is Daniel Schrader. The executive producer of Slate Podcasts is Steve Lichtai. And Andy Bowers is the chief content officer of the Panoply Network. The Culture Gap Fest is, of course, we're part of the Panoply Network. And you can check out an entire roster of like-minded and equally vivacious shows at iTunes.com slash Panoply. Our Twitter feed is at Slate Cult Fest. For Julia Turner and Dana Stevens, I'm Stephen Metcalf. Thank you so much for joining us, and we'll see you soon. I really can't say, I guess I'll have to keep a trying. So much going on, people killing, people dying. But I will dwell on that, I think I elevate my mental. Thanks for these bars on the beat.